from Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the Church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Hi, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for giving us the gift of your time and interest as we continue to explore what God has made known in Christ and through Scripture. My name is Ethan with the Venice Church of Christ. We're uh, disciples making disciples in the Los Angeles. We'd love to be of encouragement and service to you. Love to hear your thoughts uh, as we discuss the beginning of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. We've just read the introduction, the epistolary greeting to the letter. And what can we know about this letter as we begin? Uh, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy are written as the authors. They, the, the first person plural is used consistently to talk about the uh, Paul and his entourage. We will generally be speaking uh, primarily of Paul as the author, as the focal point of the conversation. The church of the Thessalonica uh, is something that we can learn about from Acts 17, 1 through 10, where it's around the year 49 or 50, and Paul and his entourage go to Thessalonica after leaving Philippi in some distress. Paul addressed the Jewish people in the synagogue for three Sabbaths there. And some of the Jewish people were persuaded, as well as a large group of God-fearing Greeks and some prominent women. So the God-fearers are Gentiles who have significant attraction to Israel and to its God, but for various reasons resist becoming proselytes. And the loss of these people... Uh, especially the prominent women, uh, caused anxiety and therefore jealousy among the Jewish people who did not believe. They thus gathered some known rabble-rousers from the marketplace. They instigated mob action. They set the city in an uproar, and they tried to find Paul and Silas at Jason's house. They didn't find them there, so they instead dragged Jason and some other Christians before the Politarches, the city leaders, and accused them of welcoming those who stirred up trouble around the world, those who were acting against Caesar's decree, suggesting that there is, in fact, another king, Jesus. And this leads to confusion among the city officials. They did receive bail from Jason and his people and let them go. And Jason and the believers sent Paul and Silas off immediately to go to Berea. And later on, the Jewish people of Thessalonica went there to incite and disturb the crowds, according to Acts 17, 10, and 13. That Timothy and Silas stayed there in Berea, and Paul went on to Athens and eventually Corinth, and there is where Silas and Timothy would meet him again, according to Acts 18, 1 and 5. So we can consider uh, the plight of the church in Thessalonica and how Paul would have felt about the entire matter. That Paul, Silas, and Timothy left, but Jason and all the brothers and sisters were still there. Uh, the willingness of the Jewish people of Thessalonica to instigate trouble in Berea testifies to their zeal in persecuting the people of God. And so, therefore, what would they still try to do to those who had accepted the gospel of Jesus there in Thessalonica? Three Sabbaths means that Paul was there no less than two and a half weeks, but perhaps no more than a month or so. And so, what concerns would he have for these new Christians? And thus, Paul is writing to the Thessalonian Christians, most likely from Corinth, uh, once Timothy had returned and given a report regarding how they were faring. And so, Paul is writing to express his thanksgiving and his joy to them, and address some of the challenges that he would have learned from Timothy. And we'll see this in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And so Paul is therefore writing likely within weeks, uh, no more than months of his departure from Thessalonica, so around 49 or 50. This might well be Paul's first preserved letter, unless you maintain a very early view on Galatians, and thus might be the oldest, 
and if not the oldest, certainly among the oldest portions of the New Testament. And so he's writing to these Christians in Thessalonica, or Thessaloniki. Uh, we also call it Salonica, or Sol with a C or a K. Uh, it's a major port city in the province of Macedonia. It was founded in 315 BC by King Cassander of Macedon. And it's named after his wife, Thessalonike, a half-sister of Alexander the Great, who was a daughter of Philip II of Macedon. And he named her thus because she was born on the day in which he won a battle with the assistance of the Thessalians, the people of Thessaly, the people of that area. Thessalonica grew quickly in prominence and was taken over by the Romans in 168 BC. The Romans built the Ignatian Way, which is a major road across the Balkan Peninsula from Dyrrhachium, which is across from Bendizi, Italy, uh, to Byzantium. And it went through Thessalonica. And in fact, the Thermaic Gulf on which Thessalonica sat is the most northwestern Aegean port on the Ignatian Way. And today, even Thessaloniki is the second largest city in Greece. We can understand, therefore, its prominence and importance in the world of first century Macedonia as that major trading center. Paul will now continue. We thank God always for all of you as we mention you constantly in our prayers because we recall in the presence of our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. As is his habit, Paul is beginning his letter with a message of thanksgiving. Galatians is the exception to that for understandable and obvious reasons, and it tends to prove that rule. Paul specifically remembers the Thessalonian Christians for their faith, hope, and love, this trifecta that we are familiar with with 1 Corinthians 3, 8 through 13. Their work of faith, core understanding, is trust and the effort and commitment that manifests that kind of trust. And it's a good reminder that for uh, Paul or Apostolic Christianity, works and faith are not mutually incompatible, and that we should not read a 16th century obsession onto the first century. The labor of love. Labor here is the Greek kopos, literally a cut, and by extension, the toil and struggle that is expended in effort. It's a very visceral way of understanding the love the Thessalonians manifested for God and Christ, his people, and Paul, and his entourage, and what it cost them. The endurance of hope. The Greek hupomone is often translated as patience, and the Thessalonian Christians endure their trials on account of the hope provided through Jesus and the resurrection. And that kind of hope requires and demands endurance and patience to see it through. Beginning in verse 4, Paul will continue. We know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, and that our gospel did not come to you merely in words, but in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. Surely you recall the character we displayed when we came among you to help you. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, when you received the message with joy that comes from the Holy Spirit, despite great affliction. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So he's given thanks to the Thessalonian Christians. Now he wants to reassure them about all that has transpired. That God's choice of these Christians, i.e. their election, has often been clouded and enshrouded by later Augustinian Calvinist projections about election and what it must involve, and we need to step away from that. Instead, Paul's trying to encourage the Thessalonian Christians to help them understand that what they experienced, what had transpired, was not an accident, it was not a coincidence. The gospel that Paul had preached came not just in words and nice rhetoric, but in power and the Holy Spirit. And all was grounded in the deep conviction that Paul and his entourage manifested and that character which the Thessalonians had seen. And because of this witness, the Thessalonian Christians bore witness themselves by imitating that witness. And so, in no small part, Paul is trying to reassure these Christians that he's not a shyster or a fly-by-night faker, but he speaks 
and he spoke and acted with conviction and sincerity in that power of God in Christ through the Spirit. But he also wanted them to see the hand and work of God within themselves in their conversion, their experiences. They had received that gospel message with joy despite uh, all the afflictions they had endured. And because of this, they had become an example to all the Christians of Macedonia Kia. Many imagine this requires Paul to have written far later when churches were more well-established and grounded in these provinces, but that's not necessary. The Thessalonian Christians could in fact take comfort in how God had chosen them to hear, imitate, and embody the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that choice did not demand willful exclusion of others or any kind of predetermination to undermine the free will choice of the Thessalonians. We could always remember that, from all evidence, most of the Thessalonian Christians were Gentile in origin, and religious persecution would have been a new and disorienting phenomenon. Paul continues in verses 8 through 10. For from you the message of the Lord has echoed forth, not just in Macedonia and in Achaia, but in every place reports of your faith in God have spread, so that we do not need to say anything. For people everywhere report how you welcomed us and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus our deliverer from their coming wrath. Paul now adds the testimony of Christians from around the Mediterranean regarding the faith and conversion of Thessalonian Christians, and thus commended them in their faith. And he testified that reports of the faith of the Thessalonian Christians had spread far and wide, and all testified how they turned from idols, that serve God, and wait for the resurrected Jesus. And again, because of this, a lot of people want to use this as evidence that Paul is writing much later, but Thessalonica is a port city on the Ignatian Way. We do not need to assume it took very long for reports about how the gospel had been received in Thessalonica to spread. And we have no reason to doubt the sincerity of Paul in this commendation. But there's also a word of exhortation in it, that the gospel demands that full turning away from serving idols to serve God and Christ. You can't just add the God of Israel and Jesus Christ to an existing pantheon. And that's how he tells the full story. They welcome Paul, they turn from idols, they now serve the living and true God. They wait for his son who was raised from the dead and who also delivers from the wrath to come. And this very much sounds like standard second temple Jewish polemic against idols. Also something we see in Acts 17, what Paul will say in Athens. And it's also a message of judgment, and thus the wrath of God against those who do not know him and do not obey the gospel of his son, which we also can see in Acts 17, 30 and 31. And so in this way, Paul begins his first letter to the Thessalonian Christians, giving thanks for them and commending them for their faith and witness in God and Christ through the Spirit. So what can we do with this? How can we apply this make sense of what Paul's doing here? We'll begin by looking at his discussion of the conversion of the Thessalonians. Because what's he trying to do here? What's he trying to do in these verses? Well, he's rehearsing the story and the experience of the Thessalonian Christians. And in a lot of ways, this is a classic Second Temple Jewish move. Uh, Stephen, in Acts 7, tries to begin by contextualizing and telling the story of what had happened to lead to the event and the condemnation that he is uttering. Paul himself, in Acts 13, when talking to the Jewish people in Antioch of Pisidia, will narrate the story and focus on certain historical developments leading to Jesus. And so here, Paul is doing the same thing in a way, demonstrating where the Thessalonian Christians have fallen in the grand story of what God is accomplishing in Jesus. But he has a very important reasons for doing it, that it's a means of encouraging the Thessalonian Christians by giving them an understanding of sense and purpose in God and Christ through the Spirit. The Thessalonian Christians are not rubes deceived by a traveling charlatan show. Instead, they had received Paul and his entourage hospitably, 
They had learned the gospel through Paul's words and conduct and the power of the Spirit among them. They were convinced, and they turned away from idols to serve the living God despite affliction. And that Paul wanted them to understand this is not a coincidence. This was God's purpose manifest in God and Christ of the Spirit, carried out effectually by Paul and the Thessalonian Christians themselves, that they were sharing in this great story of God's work in Jesus. Now, we may not have Paul writing specifically to us to lay out such things in a similar way, but we do well to consider ourselves and how we came to know of God in Christ the Spirit. Because we can very easily and often get caught up thinking of our lives as mundane, even if the narrative in which we are operating is very far from mundane. And it's good for us to re-enchant our narrative, to look at it on the cosmic scale of God's purposes in Christ through the Spirit, and how we are not here by accident or coincidence. We have not been deceived by charlatans. And thus it is for us as well to see how God has chosen us for salvation and resurrection in Jesus. We also do well to see how Paul considers the communication of that message in 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 7. Modern Christendom, thanks to the convergence of the Greek philosophical tradition, the Enlightenment emphasis on knowledge, has inherited a very uh, strong communication emphasis on information acquisition and distribution. A lot of the times we look at communicating the gospel, we think about it as telling somebody words regarding what Jesus has done for them to then accept that information. But look how Paul has laid it all out. Yes, the Thessalonian Christians certainly heard the word of the gospel, but as Paul emphasized, it was not merely a matter of words, and thus not just about information acquisition and distribution. But Paul affirmed that the gospel came in power, the Holy Spirit, and in deep conviction in chapter 1 and verse 5. Now, we may seek to discount power and the Holy Spirit because we do not have the signs and miracles to display as the apostles did, and we imagine the Holy Spirit would thus be acting in ways to influence and persuade the human heart in ways that would make us probably uncomfortable. But we should note at least how Paul says it comes with deep conviction, which is something as relevant now as it always has and ever will be. And Paul said the Thessalonian Christians became imitators of them and the Lord when they received the message, and in this way they became examples to the Christians in Macedonia, Achaia, and elsewhere. Now, return to understanding that Paul has about communicating the message might relieve a lot of the anxiety, doubt, and frustration that we endure in terms of message communication. Now, Paul goes out of his way to emphasize how the communication of the gospel is not merely in word. It should be done with sincere conviction and is to be manifest in our behavior. That the gospel must be seen in our lives as much as heard in our words. And the goal is not just to acquire information, but imitation is the goal. Imitation of the Lord Jesus by embodying his purposes. Could we even remotely say, as Paul did, that those who heard us became imitators of us and of the Lord? How much distance is there between imitating us and imitating the Lord? We have made way too much of the concerns about imitating people in their fallenness. We certainly should not be imitating anyone whose ways do not embody the ways of God in Christ. But with this kind of emphasis, we've neglected a powerful aspect of the gospel witness. That if people do not see the gospel at work transforming our lives, they have no reason to accept the words we speak about it. And then we feel the need to add to our words or wonder why our words are being so ineffective or get all depressed and discouraged when, in fact, we have tried to make artificial something that should be happening and flowing very naturally. And it has to start with us broadening the horizons of under, how we understand the communication of the gospel. It's never going to ignore or suppress the words explaining what God has accomplished in Christ, 
but it must do so much more in terms of living them. Because the gospel has to be seen in order for it to be fully appreciated. And if it's not being seen and merely heard, it is very easy to dismiss and discount. We'll also consider the testimony regarding the conversion of Thessalonians throughout the Mediterranean Basin to be a way the message of the Lord echoed forth. And we do well to meditate upon this. Is not the Lord Jesus still active in his creation and alive? And therefore, wouldn't the conversion and faithful witness of Christians in various locations represent a testimony to the working of the gospel of Jesus? This may not be an inspired account like we have in Scripture, but it is still an account of the working of the gospel, no? We have to first ask ourselves whether, in fact, the message of the Lord is echoing forth in our own lives and from the witness of our local congregation. And if not, why not? Because there's definitely space for the encouragement gained from seeing the word of God go forth and disciples made throughout the world in all kinds of difficult and differing and various circumstances. For the Thessalonians, what is that testimony exactly? That they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God in verse 9. Now we see that and we hear that. But does the import of what that meant and what that demanded really affect us? Because from the beginning of Thessalonica, there had been idols. No doubt many more had been added, especially surrounding the cult of Roman Caesar. Greco-Roman culture, like the culture of the ancient Near East, and pretty much every culture except Second Temple Judaism, and to some degree the Zoroastrians, served idols. The faint welfare of the community was tied up in the service of those gods. Any and every calamity which befell a people would be interpreted as the anger of the gods. Now, in that kind of environment, we can understand how idolizing Rome and genius of its Caesar would come about, how Rome would certainly appreciate this, and how anyone who would cease serving the divinized Roman Caesars would be suspected of treasonous disloyalty to the power of the age. Now, in all this, the Greeks are not denying the existence of Yahweh God of Israel. Instead, they're understanding him as one God among many. And so to turn to God from idols as sort of the true and living God is making an extraordinarily significant break from anything and everything the Gentile and Thessalonians had ever known, and also at the same time to invite the suspicion and hostility of their community. We have to keep in mind how it would have been just much, very tempting to just syncretize, to just add Yahweh and Jesus to a Greco-Roman pantheon. For the Thessalonian Christians had come to understand how God is the only God, and he ought to be served exclusively, even if it leads to significant hostility from the people around them who did not understand and felt very threatened by it. And that's the way it goes with conversion. To turn to God from idols to serve the true and living God is going to be costly, countercultural, and will lead to resistance, even in a theoretically more monotheistic age. We also do well to focus on that last part of that story, where the Thessalonian Christians turned to God from idols to serve God, to wait for his Son from heaven, he who was raised from the dead, and delivered them from the wrath to come. We do know, well, should note that Paul speaks of waiting for Jesus from heaven and associated him and such with the resurrection. It's a much more fleshed out topic in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18, so we will spend much more time talking about it then. But we also see here a reference uh, to deliverance from wrath. Now, in conservative Christendom writ large, a lot more has been made of God's wrath than is made within the pages of the New Testament. It is by no means the predominant image. An emphasis on hellfire and brimstone is rightly questioned and should be held suspect. 
But while it is not emphasized, the wrath of God is spoken of in the New Testament. That is prepared for all who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul would say uh, to the Thessalonians in the second letter. And Paul's framing here is very important. Jesus delivered the Thessalonian Christians from the wrath, a recognition that they, and Paul, and all of us, intrinsically deserve to suffer the wrath of God because of our transgressions, that he goes in detail and talking about in Ephesians 2, and that we're only rescued from God's wrath through our trust in what God has accomplished through Jesus. And this recognition ought to lead to good works and thankfulness and humility. And Titus 3, Ephesians 2, and other passages, not some kind of smug, sanctimonious arrogance about uh, how much better off we are than the uh, unwashed masses around us. God's wrath and judgment is a theme in the prophets and always remains behind the apostolic exhortations about the judgment to come. After all, what's the warning or concern about a judgment day of accountability, but that that day of accountability is going to lead to some kind of condemnation? And Paul's going to have a lot more to say about this to the Thessalonian Christians in chapter 5 and the first 11 verses. Now, we should indeed be concerned and skeptical regarding those who want to make much of God's wrath. But we also should seriously challenge those who want to act or presume that the concept of God's wrath is primitive or outmoded. As many Westerners today in their sterile silos question and wonder how a loving God could express wrath. They should ask themselves how God should feel regarding all the misery, pain, and suffering engendered by the abuse, exploitation, and oppression manifest in the creation. Indeed, if God would not be loving at all if he did not express any wrath, he would thus prove a most indulgent parent and thus demonstrate ultimately a complete lack of love for all those who experience abuse, exploitation, and oppression. If we're concerned about God's wrath, we do first very well best to look in the mirror, as opposed to projecting on God. Maybe the issue is we have a subconscious, implicit recognition the wrath of God would justly come upon us for the things that we have done. For indeed, overall, we do well to share in the faith of the Thessalonian Christians, and for the message of the Lord to echo around the world regarding how we have turned from the ways of the world to serve the true and living God, as we imitate the Lord and those who showed us the ways of the Lord, waiting for the resurrected Lord to return, and in him escaping that wrath to come. Again, so glad that you've joined us. We'd love to hear any questions, comments, or thoughts that you might have on the first chapter of Paul's letter to the first letter to Thessalonians. Please let us know in the comments and subscribe to us where you found us. Let us go to God in prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. We're so thankful for all the blessings you've given us, the blessings of this life. Uh, recognizing everything have, we have in our comes from you, this creation, all of uh, the good things that we have, prosperity, health, uh, and especially, Father, thankful for all every spiritual blessing with which you have blessed us in Jesus. And we're thankful for Jesus and for his, the uh, redemption that we have through him, uh, that we may be delivered from your wrath in him, uh, that we have the hope of the resurrection uh, that he has already shared in, and which we will share in when he returns and that we have the opportunity to turn from the various ways of the world and the various idols that we have served uh, to serve you, and that you have called us to do so. Uh, we're very thankful for the witness Paul has provided to the uh, Thessalonian Christians and for the witness of the Thessalonian Christians themselves, as testified by Paul in the first chapter. And we pray that we also would be the reason that your word would sound forth throughout the world and be an encouragement to many Christians and that we may faithfully embody the witness you have manifest in Jesus to your glory and honor that many may come to know of you and to participate in your work. We look forward earnestly to the return of Jesus and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. 
Again, thank you for joining us today. And if we can be of any service to you, we'd love to. Please let us know. Reach out to us at adventurechrist.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. May the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to meet again.